Today we have Rob Beardsley on the show. College isn't for everyone. Rob Beardsley is a prime example of that. After dropping out of college, he started a successful real estate investment company. He had the support of his family and knew what he wanted, and he took the plunge and did it. Hear how he did it and learn from his story to go after your own dreams and goals. Don't be afraid to take chances in life. You may not know everything, but if you have a good idea and the drive to make it happen, go for it. Rob's story is an inspiration to help anyone looking to achieve their goals. Listen and learn. Before we jump into the intro, if you have interest in learning how to invest passively, check out my five-step process for passively investing in real estate. You can download it for free by going to darrenbatchelder.com backslash learn and then select the free PDF. Now, onto the intro. Welcome to Darren Batchelder's Real Estate Investing Show. Each week, you will learn how to grow your wealth through real estate investing, be introduced to the players that are getting it done, and learn how you can get involved. And now, here's your host, Darren Batchelder. A little background on Rob Beardsley before we start the show. Rob Beardsley is 25 years old, and he started his real estate investing when he was 20. He did not let age stop him from going after his dream. He believes in stacking wins and the positive feedback loop. Now, on to the show. Hello, everyone. Today, we have a very special guest. We've got Rob Beardsley. Rob, appreciate you coming on the show. Yeah, thanks very much for having me. Absolutely. So just a little bit on how we know each other. This is actually the first time that we're talking to each other, but we, we were both at, down at the same multifamily conference in Charlotte and Rob was one of the speakers there. And, you know, for you that are listening, you can't see him, but for, for you that are on YouTube, you can, he's a young guy. And I'm like, I'm interested to find out like how this young guy get into this world and, and what's he been up to. So uh, with that, uh, first question I typically ask is how many properties and how many units you're invested in? Uh, our company, uh, Lone Star Capital, currently owns 10 properties, about 2,500 units. 20? All right. So I'm just going to come right out. I'm 52. So how old are you? 25. 25 years old. 25 years old with 2,500 units. Let that sink in. I mean, listeners, like, I'm telling you, I know people have so many excuses on why they can't accomplish things, right? How did you do it at such a young age? Well, I think it, I had a lot of shortcuts. Uh, you know, for one, as much as I think college is a great place to be, I think once you kind of know where you want to go, it can slow you down in some ways. So, and I had the infrastructure and safety net and the, my parents' shoulders to stand on. I had the confidence to drop out. So I started my business uh, with my business partner who was much older and had more corporate experience. And so by, by starting the business at 20, instead of, you know, 25 or 30 or 35, I was able to, you know, build up quite a bit of experience uh, while still 
being very young. And I think that's, you know, obviously the younger you start, the, you know, the sooner you can be successful. So I think one of the big things is a mindset thing. And it's kind of what you alluded to. It's just that people have this idea that, well, I need to get certain amount of experience before then I decide to start out on my own. But the reality is if you do have this desire and you want to be an entrepreneur, then the best time to do it is right away because that's when your opportunity cost is lowest and failure isn't as painful. So I kind of took it as, Hey, if I fail, I can just go back to school and it's business as usual. It's like it never happened. And it's even better because I'll have the experience to grow from. And if it's successful, then it's successful and I can, I can keep going. Yeah, that's huge. You said a lot of great things there. So one, I mean, you started 20 years old. Listen to that. So how did you find, you mentioned that you partnered with somebody that had a lot more experience and that was older than you. How did you find your partner? We met through a mentorship group, uh, which we were both in at the time. He joined a little bit before me. Uh, it was uh, Joe Fairless's mentorship group. And that was a great way to open many doors and just learn a ton. You know, obviously you can learn a lot from reading things, listening to podcasts. And I did all that. I listened to hours of podcasts every day, read every book, but really going and meeting people is how you learn the fastest. And for me, it was going to conferences and meetups and, and that mentorship group and just having phone calls and then, and then just doing things like talking to brokers and lenders and investors. That's just your learning goes 10 X. So rather than, you know, preparing myself for the moment that I'd be ready to talk to a broker and try to underwrite a deal, just actually doing it right away is how, if you have the humility to ask questions and learn is how you can learn the fastest. Yeah. So that's interesting. So first I'll hit up on, okay, the mentorship group and, and actually getting out there, surrounding yourself with like-minded people. Um, you know, I think there's a contingent of people out there that think that it's a waste of money to go to conferences. You know, like it, I could just read it in a book or I can just look up a YouTube video. But what you just said was at 20 years old, by joining a mentorship group and surrounding yourself with like-minded people, you developed a relationship with somebody that was more senior you know, was older than you, had more experience than you. And somehow you built a relationship where you guys partnered together. And I think that a lot of people lose sight of the value of those intangibles, like going to conferences, going to, you know, networking events that you actually can meet a business partner. You actually can meet somebody who is selling a deal. You could actually meet a broker that may introduce you to a deal. You know, you might meet a, a lender that might lend you money on your next deal. All those things happen at these events. Yeah. There's a reason why people continue to go to them. Uh, it's not just for beginners and the, the books and everything are more so for the beginners because the specialized knowledge that you seek as you grow and have issues in your business that you need help with, it's not always in a book. You know, uh, my friend Dan Hanford, who's, you know, somewhat of a mentor for me and has done extremely well in our business, uh, in our space, he, he always says, when you go to a conference, you're looking to 
learn that one key thing or make that one key connection that can transform your, your business. So it's, it's so true, right? It, if you, you don't have to make a hundred connections at a conference, it's just meeting one person can, can be, can pay for it, uh, for the conference or, or, or transform your life. Yeah, that's, that's huge. I, I agree with that wholeheartedly. Sometimes, and I'm sure you go through this too, you go and you hear a bunch of speakers and maybe two or three of the speakers, you're like, you know, I didn't learn anything, you know, no value, no value, no value. And then all of a sudden one person says something and, and like, you're like, holy cow, if I do that in my business, that can have a huge impact. And so it's worth kind of sitting through and sifting through some of the other stuff that doesn't add value to find that one nugget. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, you mentioned desire before. I, I love that you mentioned desire because I, I typically would say you have to decide and then commit, but desire is something that gets you to the point where you make a decision to go after it. Right? Like, so you had to have a desire and then you decided to quit school, quit college and, and go after it. Talk about where was your mind at to, to do that? You talked about mindset. Let's, let's hear what you were going through. Yeah. I mean, it's not an easy decision, but I'd say for me, it was easier than maybe other people's decision making process because I had the luxury of a safety net and by meaning my, my parents would be there for me. All right. I would be, I would be safe. I wouldn't be on the street. And although they did say that, you know, if you're going to school, we'll float your boat, but if you're not going to school, you're cut off. So it was a decision that I was making, uh, at, at that moment, I could have lived the cushy life in college, but really I'm such a pragmatic person that if I don't see the value in doing something, I just can't go through the motion. So I couldn't just go through school when I felt like I had this opportunity in front of me and something that I wanted to pursue. So that was really the, the thing that was eating away at me and made it impossible to continue going to school. It's just pragmatic. It's just, okay, if this is the path I need to, I need to explore this path. Yeah. You said you have a hard time going through the motions. Like that's what I want like listeners to hear that. Like there's so many people out there that they have that itch in their belly. They know in their gut, they know they want to try something else, but they're afraid, man. They're afraid. And they know they're going through the motions, but you know, taking that step, that leap of faith, that, you know, that action step, is hard for a lot of people. So I understand you had a safety net, but you actually had to make a decision. And how did that play out? Yeah, obviously I had to tell everyone and talk to my advisor about it. Oh, oh the, other, the other benefit as well was the fact that the college I was going to, Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh, uh, has a very lenient leave of absence policy, right? Because a lot of kids go there and they're tech savants and they want to do startups and they leave and try to, they, they do a startup and then they can come back. So they have a very lenient indefinite leave of absence policy. So I, I'm currently on an indefinite leave of absence and at any moment <laughs> I am liable to return. That, so that's, that's funny. So that was the other thing I could just, my advisor said, you could just come back and pick up right where you left off and there's no negative uh it doesn't impact 
you know, I don't have to retake courses or get, get credits or whatever it is. Yeah. That's different than a lot of listeners, right? A lot of listeners are, they're in a job now, a W2 job that, and that's paying them. And for them to decide to leave, that company is not giving them that leniency. Hey, you just go try it out and come back in six months or two years if it doesn't work out. Um, now, the reality is they may take them back, right? I mean, if they were they were good at what they did. Um, and they actually may take you back at a raise. I know people that have left and then, you know, they they went back as a consultant and they, they make more money. But, um, you know, making that decision is is tough for many people. Now you, you said you had a safety net and um, one was your parents. And then two, that is a big deal. Having the college tell you that they have a lenient policy. Um, so you make that decision and then what happens from there? From there it was just now finally I had the freedom to dedicate all of my time, all of my effort to this one thing, which was uh, really launching the business. And before my time was split and having that full focus, I think it's interesting. My friends and I have this debate sometimes, which is this idea about, do you have to, because we have this culture of, of hard work in America in particular, where people glorify how much they work and especially entrepreneurs. And I think, you know, one of the concepts that we discuss is, well, could you theoretically be successful if you just, let's say, worked five hours a day and you would get successful? It would just take longer than the guy that worked 10 hours a day, right? Is it a linear path to success? Just one gets there quicker than the other, right? One counter argument to that is no, you actually need the 10 hours a day, 12 hours a day, crazy initial push to get that inertia off the ground. Once you get it off the ground, then it can slow down. But I just think back to those years, those a couple year period of just full force working 12 hours a day. That was the momentum that I needed, that big push to to get it off the ground. So that was really what my life looked like at that time. Well, that makes sense. So look, you seem like a nice guy. You seem like a, a go-getter. But at 20 years old, like what value did you bring to the table? Like you had to... The other guy that partnered with you, he had to see something in you. What, what was it? Yeah, I think, you know, a little bit of competency and, and a lot of just willingness to, to work and learn and be humble. And I think that's the key when you're approaching it when you're younger. Uh, that you can go a long way with just those things. So that was, that was a good blend for us. You know, I, I, I think you hit it on the head. I mean, there's... A, Mindset, I think there's a lot of younger people that think to themselves, I'm too young. I can't achieve this. They talk themselves out of it. I don't have the money. I don't have the experience. I don't have the contacts. And so they talk themselves out of even trying, right? But it's possible to go out and find the person to partner with that has the contacts and has the money and has the relationships. But what do you have as a young person? Man, you have grit, you have determination, you have, you know, the willingness to work hard, you know, where maybe the other guy doesn't want to do those things anymore. You know, maybe they've done it, but um, so you decide to go into this space, you, you find a partner, and then the deals just show up at your door, right? 
Yeah, well, it's interesting because when we started out, right, you don't have a portfolio all, and you're, you're, you're single-minded in that you just want to get a deal. And my business partner, I'd say our, our biggest mistake that we made when starting out was we bought the myth that if you find a good deal, the money will come. And we totally neglected the capital side of things. And it was, it was a huge mistake. And, you know, we can get into that in a second. But, you know, when we started out, the point I wanted to make as far as focusing on deals, right, it was just all hands on deck. Let's just find a deal. There was no division of labor. It was just completely overlapping labor, which is fine. I think when you're getting started, it's good that everyone does everything just to learn. You have to do everything to learn. And then as the company grows, naturally, people need to take on certain roles and responsibilities and, and delegate because otherwise you're not leveraging everyone's time as efficiently as possible. So when we started out, like I said, it was just both of us focused on deals but then slowly but surely, I leaned more heavily into the deals. He leaned more heavily into the operations. And then when we found out that, wow, actually raising money is really, really hard, I had to go lean over into that and you know, essentially make that my full-time job for a period as we built out our marketing and our branding and, and our, our relationships. So it's a, it's a very healthy division of labor at this point as we've continued to grow the team. That's great. So talk about that first deal. You said that um, raising the money was, was hard. Talk, talk, about, like, talk about how that happened and what you were up against and how that impacted you and, and the deal and the timing and all that. Yeah. So for the first deal, we had to raise $4.5 million. It's a very big raise. And we were, we were ill-prepared, of course. and we just went out there and, and, and there's two, I say there's two types of money raising modes. There's the money raising mode when you don't necessarily have a deal, you don't have a timeline. And, and that's a very good money raising mode to be in, right? You build your investor funnel, you attract investors to come to you, you nurture those relationships, you build trust. But then there's the money raising mode when you need the money today, right? Because if, if someone comes to me and they says, I need to raise money today, my advice to them can't be start a podcast because you're not going to see results from a podcast two, until two years from now. So really, when you need to raise money today, that's a frantic call everybody you know mode and ask for introductions, referrals, cold calls, meetings, whatever it takes. And so that was what we ended up having to do. It was a good experience. It was very difficult. And we, we heard certainly a lot of no's, but what it also did is we're able to take a lot of those no's, hopefully, gracefully, and turn them into relationships, right? It's, it's interesting because when you reach out to somebody cold, nine times out of 10, pro I mean, certainly much more than that, they're going to pass on whatever it is you're selling them. Or if you're trying to raise money and partner on a deal, the first time, they just, they just don't have enough information. They don't have trust. They have to pass. But that could be a great opportunity to then start a relationship and, uh, and build it from there. And the other thing I think is true about our business is we all love deals, right? We all live off deals and it's not necessarily a bad thing to start a relationship off with a deal, even if it's a rejection, because a deal is exciting. A deal is interesting. A deal is a great way to get to know each other. So, so even though I, it's not a, that frantic money raising mode is not a good mode to be in. It is a great way to expand your business. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, 
So the first deal, you don't know what you don't know, right? Um, and I would say the same thing is that, you know, when you're going into your first deal, you probably should be, you know, just letting people know what you're doing all the way through, you know, whether that's on social media or when, you know, when you're playing golf with your buddies or you're, you know, you're, you're getting together at family functions, um, way before the actual deal is there. And so you can, you know, people start seeing that, Hey, Rob's going after real estate deals. Like, all right, I'm going to watch them. And then you start, people start seeing, okay, well, oh man, he's, he was just out at broker, you know, meetings and he was just on property visiting sites. If you see all that accumulate, then, you know, you're building trust and you're building, you know, expertise as you're doing that. Um, it, it makes people a lot more comfortable. Some people that I've talked to, they think they have to get that first deal before they post anything or tell anybody anything. And well, that can make raising that first deal much, 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 much harder. Yeah. It's a chicken or the egg situation as well. I've heard the exact same thing that you mentioned. Oh, I, I don't feel comfortable being a thought leader and sharing information if I don't have a certain level of credibility and whatever it is that they establish in their mind, right? It might be, I don't feel comfortable being a thought leader until I bought my first deal. Or it might right. be, I don't feel comfortable until I've sold my first deal, right? And gone full cycle. <laughs> right. So right. The, it could be whatever the hang up is, uh, but re the reality is you just need to put one foot in front of the other and take action. Take an action. That is something that, look, it takes guts, takes courage to do any step of action, you know, whether, and going to your first networking function where you don't know anybody, right? And you're, you're uh, it's a weekend or it's a weekday night and you're going to go and you're going to walk into the room. It's like first day of class, you know, and you don't know anybody. Um, but when you realize that there's a lot of other people there, you know, doing the same thing, trying to learn, and others that have been around for a long time that want to teach others, then it becomes a much less scary place. And you learn that. You, but you took action, man. I, I applaud you for doing that. That's, that's fantastic. There's a, lot, there's a lot of young people that are too afraid, you know, too afraid and don't believe in themselves enough to put themselves out there. So how did you get the confidence to believe in yourself? Was it the reading the books? Was it sports? Was it your parents? Was it, were you just born that way? Yeah, it's a great question. I think it's a very fundamental question. So I think basically at the end of the day, confidence is built from a positive feedback loop, right? How easy would it be just theoretically to be confident if every time you did anything, you were successful? And then conversely, how difficult would it be to be confident if every time you tried something, you failed, right? How could you, like, honestly, believing in yourself would be really tough. Every time you try something, it doesn't work. So I think stacking wins and building confidence over time is key and, and things apply to each other. So you mentioned sports, you know, growing up, I, I played football and that was my life and building the confidence through putting in the hard work and seeing results from that. Same with, uh, you know, going through school, right? School is an awesome 
challenge with a really straightforward feedback loop, right? Study for the test, get a good grade. Don't study for the test, get a bad grade. So it's a <laughs> it's confidence builder of, of those types of things growing up and people telling you. Uh, also, it's, you know, a corollary to this is the idea that you like what you're good at, right? And part of that is people say, oh, you're good at that and that feels good. So even if you like, for example, if math isn't your favorite subject, but every time you get a good grade in a test, everyone says, wow, you're amazing. You're so smart. You might actually start liking math because you like people saying that, wow, you're so great. You're so smart. And so that's that's another similar to confidence, that, that positive feedback loop. So I would say, you know, I've put I've, I've worked hard my whole life and it wasn't necessarily all in real estate, but working hard then gets you that, that positive feedback loop, which then builds your confidence and then gives you the idea that, hey, if I try this new thing, based on my previous experiences, it probably will work out. I love that. I, lo- I love that um, saying that you said stacking wins, you know? Um, and I think it works with fear too. I think that, you know, I, I tell people, you know, th- think about a time in your past when you were afraid and you did something anyway. You, you tried it. And it worked out. And that's like stacking the win. You just create that memory and you're like, okay, well, now I'm faced with this new thing. I've never done it before, but I know I accomplished that other thing before. So I'm going to let that kind of nudge me into trying this. And, you know, once you stack enough of those wins, it definitely helps you, you know, go after the next uncomfortable. Because look, You've done a lot at a young age, but you still have a ton more to do, right? And, and I've met some extremely successful people and they keep pushing themselves to get uncomfortable, to do stuff that they haven't done before and, you know, stacking those wins and, and learning that, hey, you know, even if it doesn't work out, more times than not, you know, I've learned from it and I've been successful by taking action versus not taking action and just letting life happen to you. I'm really impressed by people who have achieved success, whatever it means to them. And then they keep pushing, especially when it comes to money, because I feel like money can cause complacency. And I, I just don't understand how Tom Brady puts on you know, his pads every day and wants to be sweating on a hot field with a bunch of 20 year olds banging into him when his, you know, wife is a supermodel and he's, you know, so rich and has, you know, more accomplished quarterback than anybody else. And yet he still wants to go and do it. It's just crazy. So that is something that is kind of, if you will, one of my new aspirations or levels of success, because, you know, I don't want to say that I've made it, but you know, I could choose to coast and, and ease off the brakes. And that's a very tempting thing to do. So it's almost, you have to up your discipline game even harder. Cause when your back's against the wall, you know, you don't have to think about it. You just work. But then if your back's not against the wall, now you have to introduce some real discipline. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. And I, I think not in the t- Tom Brady world, but in, in this world, you know, I've interviewed people that fall into your camp. Like they've, they have thousands and thousands of units and look financially, yes, they've achieved financial freedom and they, they could be on a beach and have nobody know their name and they are going to be just fine. 
And I'm like, why do you keep doing it? You know? And, you know, after a while, it seems like I hear this repetitively over and over again that, you know, in the beginning, you're doing it, building the wealth for you, for your family, you know, maybe for generational wealth or, you know, um, but then it comes a time of, all right, what impact are you going to make on the world and, and on others? And teaching people how to become financially free is an important thing. And like, why keep that to yourself? And so I had, I'm with you. I admire people that will get uncomfortable to get out there and teach other people how to do it. Um, look, there's a few things in life that people want. They want health. Like, the, so there's fitness instructors out there. Well, like, look, they could just get fit themselves, you know, but the ones that go and teach other people that, you know, that's, that's admirable, you know, people that get wealthy, they could just go sit on the beach, but they get uncomfortable. That that's, so what are you going to do next to get uncomfortable? That's a great question. Uh, I think for me, it's, uh, it's right now we're in much, very much so a scaling mode. So a lot of the things that we've been working on have been kind of to establish ourselves. And now we get to the point where we figured out what works, we're doing what works, but now how do we do a whole lot more of that? All right. So this year we're on pace to buy 250 million in acquisitions. I would like to scale that to 500 then to a billion. And when I think about 500, I think, okay, 500, I can kind of figure that out. Well, that's 10, $50 million deals. That's somewhat reason. I mean, that's aggressive. That's very ambitious, but I can see that. But then I say a billion and my brain breaks and I don't really see the clear path to that. So that's kind of the, the level up. And so you have to figure out, okay, that makes me uncomfortable. I don't really logically understand how to buy a billion in a year. That's what, ten hundred million dollar deals? Well, I've never bought a hundred million dollar deal. So how do I do that? And, uh, you know, you just have to figure out the next step. So that's kind of where where I am right now. That, that's fantastic. I mean, look, it's all right. I want to get here and, and being realistic with yourself, like, all right, I, I don't know how to get that deal, but I'm going to figure it out. And then it, it's funny how what's the largest deal you've done so far? A little over 50 million. 50 million. And what was the first uh, first deal you did? 16. 16 million. So when you did, we're doing the $16 million deal, you pro were you thinking that you were going to be doing a hundred million dollar deal at some point? I mean, maybe at some point, but in that moment I was thinking, wow, 16 is very big. Right. That's the thing. I mean, like at listeners taking action, you know, stacking wins, like getting out of your comfort zone. Those are like, you have, if you want to build something, you got to take the first step, man. It's like every one of us starts with the first investment. And I've interviewed people with thousands and thousands. And this guy is 25 years old and he's going to be, he's thinking about how he can do a hundred million dollar deal. Like it wouldn't have happened if he didn't, you know, quit his job and go in the mentorship group and build a relationship. And like, it's one step after the other. And then when you get to a certain level, then all of a sudden looking in the rear view mirror seems easy because you've done it. Like, but it wasn't easy to get there, but now you're on to the next. 
But if you sit back and you don't take action, you're going to be in the same spot next year, man. That, that's so, the biggest thing that scares me. I'll, I'll just say that, you know, staying stagnant, right? It's not that, yeah, stagnant is not good. So, I mean, there's, and there's, I talk about the kind of the ripple effect. Like right now you're building your company and you're looking to scale, but whether you like it or not, there's people that are watching you and there's people that want to learn from you. And there's going to come a time that you're going to have to figure out like, well, how do I, how do I teach these people? Like you don't have to, right? There's people that just build businesses and just keep scaling. But, you know, how, how are you going to teach other people how to do it? And it could be by going to conferences. It could be by doing podcasts. It could be by re- writing a book. It could be by starting your own mentorship group or mastermind or whatever. But people are going to start saying, Rob, I can't believe the level of success you've had. You have to tell me how to do it. Now, there will be people that will ask you that they're not willing to do the work. That's the hard part, I think, is, you know, there's certain people that are going to ask you and they, they just want to hand it to them and it's not going to happen. Not, and there's others that will take your advice and, and will go after it. Um, so football, you mentioned you were a football player. What do is, what is sports have anything to do with business? Does it, does it come into play at all? I think it does a lot. Yeah. Especially a team sport, uh, learning leadership, learning your role on the team and how to contribute, how to, how to listen and things like that. So I think teamwork aspect of sports is huge in developing those character traits early on. I mean, also discipline, responsibility, uh, sacrifice. So those are all really good lessons from sports. Yeah, that, I, those are those are huge. Um, you mentioned sacrifice. What kind of sacrifices have you had to make to achieve this level of success? You know, when it was uh, when it was football, my family never really went on summer vacations because summer was the time to train and get ahead and summer camp and all that stuff. And then, you know, when it comes to business. Obviously, you're sacrificing your time. I mean, I don't really look at it too much like a sacrifice. I enjoy, for the most part, what I'm doing, and that's not a terrible sacrifice. But yeah, at the end of the day, you're choosing to to work when you potentially couldn't. You could be doing something else. And look, you you also gave up college. I mean, college is. It can be hard, like the classes can be hard. It's a lot of studying, um, but there's also a big fun factor associated with it. Like it could be for your kind of vacation away from your parents that they're paying for you. And and um, you have some responsibilities to get good grades, but you also have a lot of free time to do, you know, a lot of social events as well. Um, but you gave that up because you wanted to, you had a desire and you decided and you committed to going after something else. I love that you said that, you know, at first you said time, but then you were like, ah, you know, I really like what I do. You know, like, you know, that's, 
that's a cool place to be, my friend. I mean, there's a lot of people that work in jobs all their life that they don't like and they know it, but they're afraid to do something different. Yeah, it's just not worth it's just not worth it to do something if it's if you don't enjoy it. It's uh, it's something I feel really strongly about, and I think that's another thing that I felt because kind of my career track at school. I was studying computer science, and you know, kind of the thing that excited me the most was consulting. I, I found that to be very stimulating because you get to work on different projects all the time, and the traveling sounded cool. But at the end of the day, uh, I would be not location free and, and I would have to be traveling and all this craziness. So for me, being a business owner is huge because you have uh, time freedom and location freedom to an extent for both. But that is, that is big for me. So number one, enjoying it. And then number two, having those freedoms. And, you know, I, I say this a lot and I mean, I'm not sure what the exact math is, but easily I would rather make half as much money to have time freedom, location freedom, or even simply location freedom. That is, even though I like routine and we're actually just signed a lease for an office, we'll be moving the team into an office, which we're all excited about. And we'll all be going into the office every day. In spite of that, I do like having freedom and uh, yeah, it's, it's not worth it to make more money to then give up those things. Yeah. And, and a lot of people give up that freedom because they buy the nicer house, they buy the nicer car, they put the kids in private school, whatever the case may be. And now they're a slave to larger payments every month. So they feel like they can't take that risk. You know, you said you would, you would take half the amount of money to have that freedom. And the funny part is that it's freedom. It doesn't mean that you're working less. Most entrepreneurs that I know like bust their tail, but they enjoy what they're doing, right? And and so it doesn't necessarily mean less hours, but uh, here's a phrase that I've heard a lot of people say that are entrepreneurs, they don't like being told what they have to do. They, they don't be, like being told what to do. And when you're in a job, a lot of times, you know, you're just being told what to do. When you own your own business, you've got freedom to go in whatever, you know, direction that you're looking to, to push the company. So um, you're in scaling mode now and two years from now, now you may be in a different mode. You know, you may, are, are you focused only on multifamily? Yes. So focused only on multi. That's another thing about real estate that's so phenomenal is that I think there's no ceiling. So you can, even in multifamily, it's like, okay, I'm, I want to scale. I want to do larger deals. I want to go from C-class to B-class to A-class. But then there's all these other asset classes, man. There's, you know, um, and you mentioned Dan Hanford. Like, so now he's like in storage and he's do, doing car washes. Like, and maybe he'll continue to scale those businesses. Maybe he won't. Maybe he'll get into more. But there's, you know, office buildings. There's, you know, there's mobile home parks and RV parks and huge shopping centers. And like, there's so many places to go with, with it. It's all in your mind, what you believe that you can achieve. Yeah, exactly. And uh, yeah, I agree. And that's, that's one of the things I like about the real estate business is I think, I don't think you should necessarily 
chase the shiny object, but it there's a lot of scale there. The ceiling is very high. You know, at the end of the day, like just to use a very direct example, and I don't know this business well, but from my understanding, right, if you're the best coder or engineer, you know, and you get hired by Facebook, you know, you can get paid $400,000, maybe half a million dollars, but then that's kind of your ceiling. And then you have to turn into a manager and then you have to be a manager and things like, you know, it only scales so high. And I think real estate entrepreneurship, like what we do has such a higher ceiling where the numbers just grow and the percentages are, you know, they're based on the numbers. So it's really similar amount of work and, and similar things you're doing, but it could be on a million, a hundred million, a billion. And, and it's very straightforward. Absolutely. I mean, leverage, right? I mean, real estate has a lot of leverage building your own company. You could hire employees to do a lot, you know, a lot of the work. So that frees you up to do, you know, higher paid work. Um, and so it's, all about leverage and you can stop wherever you want, but you can continue to leverage where you're using other people's time, other people's money, other people's resources to achieve fantastic, fantastic things. Um, so do you see yourself staying in multifamily or do you have kind of a vision to go outside that or you don't know? Long-term definitely want to scale beyond, but for now, like we've discussed the scaling. And then I think the next big breakthrough would be development in the multifamily space. Yeah. I mean, that, there's a big difference, you know, going ground up development versus buying. So you buy a, a, a existing property, it's cash flowing day one, right? And it's a business that you're buying, but you're, you're buying a set of cash flows and projected cash flows. And what can you do you know, with CapEx money to improve those cash flows. But ground up development is completely different, you know? Okay, well, how do you buy the land? And then, all right, how long do you have to hold the land? And, um, you know, somebody just taught me something recently. I thought that, you you know, people buy the land and they, they're out of money for the property taxes and whatnot. People are like, no, you just, you know, depending on where it is, you, you could lease it to a farmer that, uses that land and he gets the crops and that, you know, pays you a, a lease. And, and all of a sudden now your all your property taxes and your loan is covered. Well, that's pretty, that's pretty strong, you know, to be able to do that. Um, but that, that's the beauty about real estate is that you get the leverage and there is no ceiling. The other thing I would say, and I want to get your, your experience on this, is that it's very collaborative. Like there's people that are willing to help you. Like even if you're going after your first deal, there I had so many people that had way more experience than me that were like, hey, Darren, man, anything you need, like, you know, call me and I'm ha happy to help you. Um, now, sometimes you're competing on the same deals, you know, with, with other people that you know. Um, and then other, other times you're... You can, they're a phone call away to help you. What's your experience with collaborative? Yeah, I have found the business to be very collaborative and rather than competitive, right? You could imagine that other businesses, even if we are competitors in, in real estate, I, I think people are very willing to share information. So I think 
I would imagine other businesses, information is not shared as freely uh, amongst competitors. So I think real estate is very collaborative. And even if you are competitors, you might find yourself doing a co-GP anyhow. So that is another really awesome aspect of real estate and why you can grow up in the business faster. Yeah, absolutely. I, I'll share a story where I, I think I made a mistake. Um, it may not have panned out, but I walked onto a property and I was doing a property tour and somebody that I knew was leaving. They just had a property tour on the same property. Now, it was in an area that I think was being overlooked. So it'd be different if there was, you know, a ton of people looking at this deal. But I didn't feel like there were a ton of people looking at the deal. And I thought to myself, I should just call him and see if we can partner. And rather than compete against each other, you know, we, we both would make a little less, but we'd get the deal. Um, and my ego got to me, I think. And I just, you know, said, oh, well, you know, I'm just going to go alone and try to beat him. And he beat me to the punch. He locked up the deal and I got nothing, right? So I always think about that and I'm like, I should have just called the guy. He may not have wanted to partner with me. Who knows? But I think looking back, that would have been the smart play. One phone call could have potentially, you know, got me part of that deal. Yeah, I've definitely thought that before as well. It's, it's funny. I mean, you know, so talk about focus because, you know, there's, there's a level, especially when you're going after your first deal, um, you know, a lot of people will tell you it's going to take you six months, nine months, a year, let's just say a year. And, and people kind of have that in their mind. And I've seen people come into the business after that year hits, they get frustrated and some of them peter out, right? They just can't stay, you know, have the longevity and the persistence to, to keep pressing on. Um, but talk about focus and how you have to be focused in order to, you know, get that first deal. I, yeah, I think focus is huge. It's one of our main things about us that I think is, is one of our reasons of success. And, and focus on the acquisition side is great because you, you need the brokers to know who you are. You need to establish credibility. And it's really difficult to do that if you're looking at 10 different markets, right? How could you really be credible in 10 different markets? It's hard enough to be credible in one. So focusing on a market and being there, underwriting all the deals, talking to the brokers consistently and sharing your feedback on the deals with them, which they very much appreciate. And then the other thing too about being focused is you actually can make sense of the deal flow because you look at all the deals in a particular market and you're focused you actually can identify better what a good deal looks like, right? If I looked at a deal in a market I had never been in, like, for example, I don't know, Boise, Idaho, it'd be much more difficult for me to say if it's a good deal or not. You know, I might have an idea, but I really wouldn't know. Whereas in my market, I'm looking at deals every day. I know exactly what a good deal looks like, and I can feel it intuitively just because I've underwritten so many deals. So I think focus on both getting good deal flow and then being able to identify it is, is huge. And then furthermore, a little bit later down the road, also having the focus, for example, us, we have in-house property management. So with our 
vertical integration, uh, we have a centralized portfolio and you, you, you be much more difficult to vertically integrate if you had a deal here and there across different markets. Uh, but because most of our deals, almost all of our deals are in Houston, you know, we've got our management team in Houston as well. That focus makes it easier to execute on our plans. That, that's great. You said so many great things there. So, you know, making sense of deal flow and feeling it intuitively. Um, I remember the first letter of intent I put in and I was kind of afraid if they were going to accept it because I wasn't sure if I was, you know, underwriting it properly and whether I, it was, I was given a good price and I lost that deal. And then I underwrote so many deals in the, in the Dallas market. And then all of a sudden, the next time I was at a deal that I was like, you know what? I like this deal. I, it was double the price of the first one, but I just knew there was so much opportunity. I didn't hesitate at all. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't scared. I was like, this is a great deal. And I went, I went wholeheartedly after it. I did not get the deal, but you know, I could see all that work of doing the underwriting had paid off because it, in that split second, I was able to confidently know that market and know that this was a good deal. So that's, that's huge. If you don't do it, you know, sometimes seeing things trade away is a good thing. It's a good thing, you know, in a lot of different scenarios. One, as a syndicator, it's good because then it kind of tells you where, the market is um, as a as a passive, you know, like when you're you talked about it earlier on when you're building relationships. Well, in the beginning, you're showing somebody a deal. You know, if you tell them, "Hey, look, I really need to know in the next few days whether you have interest or not," and you know they come back and say they're going to pass, and the next week you call them back up again, like. They're like, well, he said it was going to be gone. And now all of a sudden he's coming back to me a week or two later and he's asking me to, to get in that same deal. If you see it trade away and the guy gets it done, then they're like, ah, he was right. You know, the deal, he funded the deal, it got done. Okay, next time he calls me and says, you know, I, I have a few days or else I'm going to miss it. I'm, you know, more apt to, to believe him. Yeah, that is huge. And it's building scarcity as well. I, yeah. I, I like that a lot. And that, that applies also, interestingly enough, to the institutional capital space, which we do play in. And it's, you know, it's a bit of a different market than your typical. So talk investor. about the, the difference between dealing with um, people, you know, kind of high net worth individuals that invest in these deals and institutional players. Talk about the difference in the two. Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, big picture, right? Uh, your typical high net worth investor that is writing a $100,000 check uh, doesn't do real estate professionally. This is not their business. Whereas institutional investors, them investing in you is their business. That's their job. Their job is to find sponsors. Their job is to invest in deals with sponsors. So the, obviously the sophistication level is completely different. Uh, the check sizes are different, right? If you have a hundred thousand dollar check with high net worth investors, then you know, institutional investors are writing anywhere from typically five to twenty-five million dollar checks, and the fees are different as well because they are 
writing you, it's like a bulk discount because they're giving you $10 million all at once from one source. They demand to pay you lower fees. They demand to get a better split of the profits. And you as a sponsor have to decide whether that is worth it to you. Are you willing to accept lower fees, lower profit split for the convenience of having a large check writer as a partner? And also I'd say the other benefit, aside from one source of big money, is their experience, their sophistication. You know, it's, 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 they're not another cook in the kitchen trying to work with you, but they're an amazing advisor because they likely have had way more experience than you. At least that's been the case for us. Uh, and, and it's a great way for us to learn by partnering with these sophisticated groups. That's great. So um, it's almost like in the, in the tech space, like a vent, good venture capitalist that, you know, can not only provide the money, but also provide expertise and can possibly connections. Um, so you talk about, you know, the fees, obviously if they're going to write a bigger check, they they want something, you know, different. Um, can you share any specifics on, you know, or generalities on like what part of the fee structure do they really hone in on and how big of a discount do they get? Yeah. So if you, if you look at the typical syndication fee load, which in, in my opinion is around a 2% acquisition fee and a 2% asset management fee. And, and for those that are less familiar, basically a 2% acquisition fee would be 2% of the purchase price. And that would be paid at closing out to the sponsor. And then an asset management fee is an ongoing fee, typically calculated based on revenue. So 2%, 2%. Now, in the, in the institutional world, it's closer to 1% uh, for each fee as, as more standard. Now, it could be 1.2, it could be 1.5 even, which is, which is nice and healthy uh, for, for those fees. So it's, it's kind of just in that general lower sure. lower 1% range. So you could see, I mean, it could be a 50% discount, uh, which is rather What about big. splits? And, and then splits are, are, are more interesting because there's just more complicated things you could do. So if you say that your typical uh, retail structure is like a 30% promote or profit split to the sponsor over a 7 8% preferred return, you know, the split is much more favorable to the institutional investor where they're getting like a, a nine or even 10% preferred return. And then they're paying like a 20% promote up to a 12 or 12 to 14% IRR above that. It could be 40 and then maybe over 16 or 18, it could be 50, but institutional investors really don't like a 50, 50 split. It offends them, offends their sensibilities. So that's, that is more rare. But that is, that is the difference there. So it's uh, <laughs> that, that's funny. Yeah. So it, it's a big difference. And what, what I think is really interesting, and I think this is a major thing happening in the industry, is, is just the success and growth of capital raising and, and crowdfunding, right? Whether it's, you know, like uh, Dan Hanford, going back to him, he's doing things that have never been done in this business ever. You know, people have never ever before bought $80 million deals with 2000 investors. That's, that's just is, is a new thing by via technology, via social media, and it's disintermediating the middle market real estate, private equity space. 
and you're seeing it right before your eyes because the funds that compete in that space are getting crushed because if you or me were sponsors and we have a, a high net worth investor base that can fund us $10 million, which, you know, we routinely raise $10 million of retail equity and we can charge higher fees, better profit split, more control, or we go to a private equity firm and it's lower fees, lower profit split, less control. Why would we do that? So the answer, the only answer is scale. The reality is if I can only raise, let's say $5 million from my retail investor base, but I have a institutional partner that can write me a $15 million check. Okay. Now they're making it up in volume, right? If I can buy a 50, 80, $100 million deal with the institutional investor, I'm going to go to them. That that's, that's really attractive. But what if you can do that $80 million deal with your retail investors? So it's, it's really crowding out these smaller private equity firms. And, and like I said, disintermediating the, the space. That's, that's really interesting. So what do you, uh, you like to do outside of work? Do you outside <laughs> or do outside you work, work all day, all night? Well, something that I, I heard recently is kind of a piece of advice is, and this is not answering your question, but uh, a piece of advice. Don't worry. Is, I'll ask it again. <laughs> yeah, we'll get there. We'll get there. Uh, the, the advice I got was look at everything like it's work. So even if you aren't working, you know, treat it like it's work. And th- this is not, this doesn't sound so relaxing and it, it isn't necessarily relaxing, but, you know, treat everything like a professional. And, and even if you're relaxing, for example, or going on vacation, treat it like work. Like how do you actually make this vacation the best it can be, you know, be a professional about it. And if you're going to relax, uh, like my dad recently retired and I was talking to him on the phone the other day and I, you know, I see him kind of just sitting at his desk. Like he would, as if you're working, I'm like, why are you sitting at your desk? You're retired. You know, don't you have something fun to do? And he's like, no, I don't know. This is just kind of what I do. And I, and I said, well, if you're going to retire, like retire with, you know, conviction, retire with, be deliberate about it. Like if you're going to putz around and waste an hour, like waste that hour righteously, like really relax, you know? So that was the advice I heard of, you know, treat everything like work, but that didn't answer your question. Uh, but basically I do like to not work. Uh, and I do like to be active in the gym. That's kind of probably my one single hobby is I do yoga. I do boxing. I do weight training. And, uh, that, that is a great break in the day and also a great way to build energy and, and, and focus and discipline and all that stuff. Absolutely. Work, working out. And man, if you get into a habit of working out every day, I mean, that's, it's a, that's a huge thing. A lot of people struggle with that. You know, they start on in January, I'm going to lose weight and they peter off, you know, so learning discipline and consistency um, with, you know, working out with underwriting deals. Like, look, listeners, I know people, so Rob left college and went all in, okay? And he had a safety net with his parents and with his school, but he went all in on it. I know people that had W-2 jobs that had a desire and committed and decided they were going to go after it, but they had to do it, you know, when they got back from work at night. Instead of watching Netflix, you know, they were 
underwriting deals. On the weekends, they were putting together offers. You know, those are the types of, I don't know, lack of a better word, sacrifices that you have to make, you know, in order to to get there. It's not just going to get handed to you. It is work, but then you build, and you didn't use this word before, but, you know, you build momentum. The beginning part, you know, is is hard. And then once you start building the relationships and building the systems and the processes, then you get momentum and then it gets easier. So, but you got to take action, man. Got to take action. Well, Rob, I really appreciate you coming on the show. Um, I wish you a ton of success. Um, I look forward to meeting you um, face-to-face at a conference uh, coming up here at some point. And um, listeners, I hope that you enjoyed that one. Um, Rob, if people want to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to reach out? Yeah, the best way to reach out and learn more about us is on our website, lscre.com. That stands for Lone Star Capital Real Estate. So that's lscre.com. On our website, we've got our, our free underwriting model download that we use to evaluate our deals. And we've got a link to articles and the book that, I wrote. That's a, that's a free spreadsheet that people can download for underwriting? Yes. Look, that in itself, I know so many people that are like, Hey, how do I, how do I get an underwriting, you know, Excel spreadsheet? And I'm part of a mentorship group and I'm, I cannot send it because I'm obligated not to. So there's a resource for you. You don't have an excuse. Download that thing for free. Yeah. Love that. And, you know, it was a strategic decision years ago to give it away for free rather than sell it. Uh, And I think it's, it's paid off in, in multiples because over 5,000 people have downloaded it and it's grown our network tremendously and established credibility. And, uh, you know, we've done more deals because of it. I'm sure of it. 5,000 people have downloaded it. That's, that's fantastic. Well, good for you. I mean, like you said, I, I know a lot of people that charge for that. And so, um, that's, that's powerful, but it's a, it's a great step in building that relationship with somebody, right? So I, I cut you off. Were, were there other things that you were about to mention that were on that website? I mean, yeah, there's that, plenty more, but uh, I'm sure people will be able to find those things for themselves. And if they also want to connect with me on LinkedIn, I post daily there. And uh, you know, feel free to connect and reach out on there as well. Listeners, no excuse, man. This guy started at 20. He's 25 now. and He's thinking about doing a $100 million deal coming up. So um, I hope you enjoyed that one. Until next week. We're signing off. Thank you for listening to Darren Batchelder's Real Estate Investing Show at darrenbatchelder.com. If you liked the episode, please provide us with a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast platform of choice. If you already provided us with a five-star review, then thank you. And please share the show with a friend. 